Hi, and welcome to another episode of Leadership Narratives with the Kentucky Psychological Association, where I interview leaders in the field of psychology in Kentucky. My name is Hannah Heights, and I'm a doctoral student in the Counseling Psychology Program at the University of Louisville. Today, I'm here with Dr. Stephen Niffley, who's the Associate Director for the Center for Behavioral Health and Assistant Professor in Spalding University School of Professional Psychology. In addition to these roles, Dr. Niffley is also the coordinator for the Collective Care Center, which is one of the few racial trauma clinics in the country. Welcome. We're so excited to have you on the podcast today. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, thank you for, for taking the time. So if you could just first start out by telling me a little bit about what attracted you to the field of psychology. Sure. So there are, are, are two things that uh, attracted me to the field. Uh, the first one is that I've always been a psychology nerd, uh, and I embrace nerd um, uh, wholeheartedly. Uh, and so when I was in high school, I used to have a subscription uh, to psychology today, because, well, that's what you do in high school. If you like psychology, you have a subscription to that. And I remember one time I was reading this article uh, that talked about multiple personality disorders. At least that's what it was called at the time. It's now a dissociative identity disorder. And they were talking about this study where someone's, where a person's alter, um, um, one person had diabetes and another person didn't. So whenever that person transitioned uh, from uh, one alter to another, they would go from needing to, to test their sugar, uh, to manage uh, their food and diet, um, to then all of a sudden not having to do all of those things. And that was just amazing because here, like, how does that happen? The person's brain literally was shifting their chemistry in a way to where it was giving and taking away a disease. And so in my mind, I was like, I want the ability to, to like, have that type of influence because uh, I'm very strong into social justice issues and uh, into issues related to black males. And I've always thought, how cool would that be if we could help train black men to think in a way that they could literally uh, change their environments, similar to how we can use our brains to eradicate diseases within our own bodies. And so then I got to uh, undergrad, I went to the University of Louisville, and while I was there, I worked at a, a facility called Brookline, because uh, you know, when you're a broke college student, you need to have a job uh, to pay for those ramen noodles uh, so you don't starve. And uh, while I was at Brookline, it's now called Uspiritus, I believe, um, I had a chance to work with a, a number of boys at uh, one of the cottages there um, as like a, like a mental health worker. Uh, and one of the things I realized is that I had absolutely no skill uh, to help these, these young males. Uh, they had experienced some of the most horrific things that you could have ever imagined uh, happening to a child. And, you know, they would ask things like, can you, can you take me home, Mr. Steve? And can I stay with you, Mr. Steve? And, and all of that. And I'm like, man, I'm, I'm 20 years old. I, I don't even have no room for myself in my apartment because it's that small. Uh, I don't have the ability to take care of you. Um, and so one of the things I decided is that I really needed to go back to school in order to be really helpful to uh, those boys, because remember in the beginning, I talked about um, how being able to use our minds to change ourselves and our circumstances. And I wanted to be able to give the same power and gift 
uh, to these young males as well, that despite the horrible circumstances that had happened to them, that they would feel like they had the ability to use their minds to change those circumstances and to be the people that they were destined to be. Wow, thank you for sharing that. That's a really beautiful pathway and kind of seeing your experiences and how they all connected is really interesting. So thinking about your trajectory, how did you end up as an assistant professor at Spalding? Sure. Well, uh, I uh, originally decided that I was never, ever, 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 ever going to be in academics because I thought that those people were boring and uh, just sat in their offices and didn't contribute meaningfully uh, to the field because they just used a whole bunch of big words and you know, created documents that no one ever read. Um, and so my original goal had been to go into community mental health. And um, you know, like the, the more I got into community mental health, the more I realized that that wasn't something I could do every day, you know, eight hours a day, 10 hours a day, you know, for 40 to 50 hours a week, uh, just because of the, just the emotional uh, processing uh, that's that's involved in that um, and so I remember I got a chance to uh, go up to, to Boston uh, to do a postdoc up there uh, and while I was there I had opportunity to do a couple other different things uh, so like some consultation work and some presentations and things like that and I was like wow it would be cool to do some of this as part of my work in working in community mental health um, but while I was on postdoc, uh, of course, your, your end goal was to hopefully one day find a job. And there was this really cool opportunity that came up for me at Wright State University, uh, where they offered me a, a teaching position there as an assistant professor. Um, and of course, remember, I was like, oh, I never want to go into academics. Uh, but uh, during the interview, I told them about some of the things I was very interested in. And they were like, oh, yeah, sure, you can do all of that. You know, you could be a consultant. Uh, you can uh, do a lot of community work if you want to. In fact, we encourage you to do those things. So much so that we will give you a whole day a week to do community work, to do consultation work. Um, and of course, that wasn't something I was going to argue against because I originally thought that going into academics would take me away from that. But in fact, to be able to be encouraged to do those things um, was really awesome uh, to be able to, to be a part of those efforts. And so I stayed at Wright State for four years and um, an opportunity came uh, for me to come back home. So Louisville was where I'm from and Spalding is where I graduated uh, with my uh, first master's and my doctoral degree. Um, and they offered me a unique opportunity to uh, do a couple of really cool things. So not only just to be an assistant professor like I've been before, uh, but to also co-lead uh, a community mental health center. And then as a part of that, to be able to run uh, a unique specialty clinic, uh, which is the Collective Care Center, which specializes in the treatment of racial trauma. Um, and I've did a lot of research in that area. I've written a lot of books and did a lot of presentations and all those type of things on it, uh, but I never found a place where I can engage um, in developing a treatment model. And they said, you come here, we'll give you everything that you need in order to make that happen. And so that's how I ended up here, uh, being an assistant professor 
then also holding those other roles as well. It really sounds like a, a dream job for you based on what you described. It is. Um, you know, if we kind of go all the way back to the beginning, um, you know, I believe in the power of helping people to change their circumstances by changing, uh, by using the power of their minds. And if we think about how racial trauma impacts people, is it impacts folks through the experience of microaggressions, but also through the experience of internalized racism. And essentially what internalized racism does is it convinces you that you are an inferior person, uh, that you are not worthy of, um, uh, of pursuing all the really cool things that life has to offer. And so I literally get the ability every day to help people change their minds and then change their mind, use that changed mind to change their circumstances by you know, eradicating you know, internalized racism and, and doing things like that as part of the Collective Care Center. And this is a little off script, but I think it's important to bring this up given the events that have gone on recently. What has it been like um, for you to work at the Collective Care Center over the past couple of weeks? Sure, it's, it's been tough. Uh, you know, the, the challenge, uh, the, one of the differences between racial trauma uh, therapy and other forms of therapy is that I can administer CBT or IPT or, or any of those other forms of therapy without necessarily having experienced uh, the challenges that we're treating, right? So I can work with someone that has experienced depression without having experienced depression myself. I can work with someone that's experienced anxiety without having experienced anxiety myself. Uh, because the racial trauma clinic is supervised by a person of color and is staffed by uh, clinicians of color, uh, we are not uh, uh, invulnerable to the experience of racism uh, because we experience it every day just being people, the people that we are. And so we are working with folks through the healing process while we are also trying to heal ourselves. And so uh, the cool thing about it is that uh, there's a nice parallel process that allows us to greater empathize with the folks that are suffering. The challenging part is that we are holding uh, two narratives at the same time, which is our own as clinicians of color, but also a narrative of our clients as well. And really, and holding both of those can uh, be a, a challenging weight at times. Thank you for, for sharing that. Um, so that's definitely um, a heavy aspect of your work. What, what would you say your favorite aspect of being a psychologist is? My favorite aspect is getting to do a whole bunch of different things at one time. Uh, I'm not a in, in, in the office guy, uh, which has been really challenging because my home is my office now and uh, I'm ready to leave it. Um, uh, but so I get to consult, I get to heal, I get to teach, I get to, um, you know, just be out there offering my expertise in a lot of different ways. Um, and I can't think of any other job where I would have the capacity to be able to do so many different types of things uh, at one time uh, that's consistent in a way to where I'm uh, working on diversity issues, I'm working on black male psychology, or I'm working on uh, challenges related to racial trauma. Yeah, it seems like you really dive into a lot of different topics and um, and activities through your work. And I was looking at your website, which is awesome, by the way. Um, and I was curious if you could just share a little bit more about some of your consultation work and what that looks like. 
Sure. So I've been very, very fortunate to uh, work with a number of areas that impact uh, marginalized populations. Uh, so I've done a lot of consultant work with law enforcement uh, uh, organizations, with um, uh, school districts, with health care organizations. Um, like I've done consultant work, you know, across uh, the ocean and South Africa and, and India and um, all those spaces uh, where I focus mainly on uh, organizational consultation. So helping those organizations better serve um, marginalized populations, uh, but then also helping them to serve specifically uh, black male uh, related issues. Okay, that's so interesting. Thank you. Um, so thinking about COVID-19 and kind of the uh, environment we're all finding ourselves in now, what kind of changes do you think will occur in the field of psychology as a whole? Uh, the, the two things that really stand out to me uh, are uh, changes related, well, a couple of things. Uh, so uh, just as a practicing psychologist, we'll have to rethink therapy and assessment, uh, specifically assessment. I think we are better prepared uh, to address any sort of issues when it comes to conducting psychotherapy uh, via a telehealth format. I think what we're experiencing some challenges at right now is how do we conduct assessment uh, via telehealth, right? You know, if we're in this space where we have to socially distance, how do I administer the risk or the waste or measures like that that require a certain level of contact, uh, either the person with the, the tools or actually face-to-face -face contact in order to uh, administer uh, the test. And so I think that's where we're starting to see uh, some challenge at. Uh, I know that we are, um, you know, actively working on what does assessment look like in this time and have discovered that there are quite a few ways that you can administer assessments via telehealth. The challenge is, is that, um, you know, no one is really trained on, on how to do those things. Uh, and so we're continuing to find ways to uh, both train ourselves as supervisors to know how to administer these type of tests, but then also to supervise students who are also engaged in assessment as well, which ties into the, the third piece, which is um, thinking through what supervision will look like uh, via telehealth. Um, so it's very hard to um, observe uh, a student uh, doing their work, um, you know, in the same way that you might if you were sitting in on a session, uh, because now, uh, you know, I'm wanting to join uh, a supervisee via a Zoom conference. And so I'll be the third random box uh, in this giant black square where two people are having a conversation and I'm just sitting there, just, just listening and observing to the conversation. Um, and so like, you know, that'll have a different feel to it because we're all in the same room together, but not really at the same time. Uh, and so having a dialogue around what that will look like. And so I, I see that, um, from a practicing psychologist standpoint, um, you know, therapy, of course, uh, there will be some changes, but I think we're, we're in a better place there. Uh, two areas where we'll have some difficulties around assessment and supervision from a practicing psychologist standpoint. Another thing for us to consider uh, is access. Uh, so if we are conducting telehealth, um, does that now mean that we should be thinking more about what does telehealth look like across state lines? If I'm conducting telehealth, uh, you know, in this state, what's to say that um, I can't 
conduct similar telehealth sessions in, in a different place, uh, in a different state. Um, you know, because we've already started to loosen those rules. I think, you know, right now there's an agreement with places like Indiana, with places like Illinois, where, you know, you meet with their board, you uh, sign the emergency document that to request to be able to access services, and then you're able to uh, be a psychologist temporarily in their state. And so if we already have the capacity during this time, what's to say that we can't facilitate a more permanent capacity to do so um, after this pandemic has, has ended in its current form? Uh, so policies related to um, the practice of psychology across state lines, supervision, assessment, and then um, telehealth in terms of therapy. I see those are the four areas where uh, we'll see some pretty significant change afterwards. Yeah, I definitely hope you're right um, as far as policy changes uh, moving forward. I know we talked about that a little bit before recording started, um, but I think there's there could be a lot of room to expand access through some against. So like I think about uh, my situation specifically, at least to my knowledge, in the city of Louisville, there's one black male child psychologist, uh, and that's myself, right? And so, uh, and I think 95% uh, of the psychologists in the state of Kentucky are white, which leaves 5% of psychologists any other race. And so if someone uh, is unable to access us in the state of Kentucky, but there are other uh, states that have a greater percentage of persons of color that identify as psychologists, then are we doing a disservice by not connecting those two individuals together? If I'm full, if the other 5% of persons of color are full, but there's someone in Illinois or Indiana or Ohio that could take that individual, um, but they're uh, hampered by our state line uh, requirements, I mean, are we uh, creating an access issue in a space where we should be encouraging greater access? That's such a good point. I've heard access more in along with conversations around like internet service and things like that. But I think you bring up a really good point around access and the type of provider you want and what you're, what you feel comfortable with in a provider. So I think that's a really good point. That's not always addressed. Yeah. So I know for me specifically, I, I have a very, very small power practice and I only see black males only. Um, and I only see black males because I would not have the space to see that population if I open it up to everybody, knowing that uh, there are so many black males that need this service, but otherwise couldn't access me if I saw anybody else. Um, and um, I feel like I have skill that I can offer to a variety of different people, but also recognize that there's there's this need. Uh, but if we were, if there was more of me in a different state that could also see some of the black males that are here, that presumably I could see a, a wider variety of folks uh, if I so chose. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Well, I'm hopeful someone will hear this podcast and policy and be able to to push some changes forward. Who knows? Well, you know, you're, you're a student one day, right? You know, you, yeah. you might be on somebody's state board, and you can implement you know the policies that you feel like are important at that time. I'd like to hope so. So thinking broadly about the kind of impact you'd like to make, what what are your goals for your community through both your research and practice of psychology? Mm -hmm. uh, and this is extremely, um, just really relevant at this point, but I want to um, 
create a space of education, training, and healing uh, when it comes to the experience of racial trauma. So when you think of racial trauma and racial trauma therapy, I want you to be able to say, I know a guy, that guy's name is Dr. Stephen Niffley. He's our expert in that area. He runs a clinic that provides free service to those folks that need it, that provides quality training uh, to clinicians that are interested in it and provides significant education to the community when it comes to issues of racial trauma. Um, if I was to think about what that would look like from a career standpoint, it's really just having an enormous center uh, that um, like brings all of those components together uh, to where we're able to provide quality education, we're able to provide quality training, and then we're able to provide accessible, uh, if not free service to those folks that need it. That's specific issues related to racial trauma. I'm, I'm hopeful you can get there. It seems like you've made a lot of significant headway in just a few years, so. You know, we're, we're on the road and I have 30 years left to go in my career. So I'm, I'm hoping that in that time we'll, we'll make things happen. Wonderful. So thinking about times when things get tough and when goals feel unachievable, what keeps your motivation strong? The idea that my community needs me and that uh, if I'm not doing the work, who is there to, to do it, right? So, you know, I just mentioned uh, the lack of black psychologists in, in the state, um, and there's even fewer black male psychologists. The last APA task force study uh, said there are uh, black males comprise a half a percent of all psychologists. So if I ever decide one day that I don't want to do this work, well, who's who is there to do it? Um, and so like things like that keep me going. Also seeing successes, seeing someone, um, you know, that has went through our, our racial trauma therapy or that I'm just working as a black male and just, you know, regular therapy approaches, uh, seeing them uh, rediscover these parts of themselves uh, in terms of their resilience and their strength. Uh, and then see them apply that to making changes in their lives. I mean, like that's uh, the best, uh, the, that's the best thing a therapist could ask for. Um, also just uh, being able to, to teach and stay connected uh, to folks that I've mentored over the years and to see them uh, do really awesome things and then just surpass me um, in, in terms of just their success uh, are all things that really keep me going. So seeing the success uh, of the people that I've supported, and then also seeing the success of therapy of therapy clients uh, that I've worked with uh, have been really meaningful to help keep me going through really tough times. And then also just recognizing that uh, I have this uh, responsibility uh, to this collective that I belong to uh, as Black Americans and all of that and making sure that uh, I'm being the best resource that they need right now. Yeah, I think um, hearing you describe that, I imagine that would be very uh, motivational to to know how much of an impact you're making on so many people who have few resources and um, providers who look like them to mm -hmm. to be able to talk to. Yeah, and you know, it, it sounds real good, but also I'm I'm a little lazy, right? <laughs> I don't work very hard, and uh, the more folks that I can get trained and educated. Uh, and interested in the field of psychology, the more people like myself will be in the field. 
which means I'll have to work less. And, you know, I don't mind working less. Uh, and so if there's a case for that to happen, then I'm, I'm certainly fine with that. Um, and so the more folks uh, that are, you know, are, are black individuals that are interested in this type of work, I'm certainly willing to, to mentor and, and to support them because uh, I know that they are, are valued, valued and, and needed um, both for my own personal um, edification so I can work less, uh, but also because their communities need them as well um, to be the, the meaningful psychologist that I know that they can be. Well, as someone who's written multiple books, I do find it hard to believe that you're lazy, but I can see the, the other factors being, being very motivating. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So if you could tell me a story about an unexpected challenge you faced and how you overcame that challenge. Sure. Gosh, there's this thing that's going on right now. It, it starts with a P. It ends in emic pandemic. That's what it is. Uh, that's an unexpected challenge that I hadn't uh, expected to come my way. Um, and that has, um, you know, really um, made me think deeply about um, like how I do my job as a psychologist, as a, an administrator, and also as a teacher, because it's forced me to use skills and ways of thinking about the world that I otherwise might not do. So, for example, I'm not a, a big telehealth person. Uh, there's just something about sitting across the room from someone um, and being able to, to observe body language, be able to observe shifts in posture and tone and, and voice and all those things uh, that I originally thought I couldn't capture as well, uh, utilizing a, a telehealth format. Uh, so I went kicking and screaming uh, to doing this whole telehealth thing. Um, but what I've discovered over time is that if I'm open to learning about the process, I can use the tools that are given to me to still be helpful and meaningful to folks. And that's probably one of the best things that I've learned uh, during um, working through a, an unexpected challenge is, you know, being open uh, and utilizing that challenge as an opportunity to learn uh, a new skill set. Um, I have developed skills in, in telehealth and supervision via an online format and presenting to like hundreds of people uh, on a tele, uh, on, you know, an electronic platform. And those are things I wouldn't have it wouldn't have done on my own uh, that being in this unexpected challenge has given me the opportunity to do. And so really it's just about your mindset and then being open to, you know, the challenge. Yeah, hearing you talk about that is is wonderful because you can even hear it in the way you describe the, the challenge that you're flipping this negative event and this really difficult experience into something positive that's allowed you to build new skills. So I can really hear that coming through. No, for sure. And I'm, I'm also a, an, an ACT person. That's, that's where my training is. And so, you know, ACT is all about how you talk about things. Like, it's not necessarily the problem. It's how you talk about the problem. And so I could say, gosh, being in this pandemic really sucks real bad. Uh, and I'm never going to get out of it. Or I could say, you know, this is an opportunity to learn, to grow, to reflect. Um, and uh, that's the stance I've taken thus far really like that. Thanks for modeling that. That's a helpful reminder, I think, to all of us. For sure. Um, there's this really uh, cool um, text that I uh, have just, uh, you know, finished reading. It's called Man's Search for Meaning uh, by Frankel. 
Um, and, you know, he talks, he says this quote about if you know your why, you can survive anyhow. Um, and, you know, like I think that's a, a space where we're all leaning into right now, or at least I'm encouraging folks to lean into is like if you know, like if you can find meaning in all of the suffering right now, then um, you can survive any any sort of suffering. I, I love that book as well. I actually have it on my nightstand to reread it because I haven't read it since I was in high school, maybe. Um, but it's a, a fantastic book. book. It's a good book to discuss you right now because I think many folks are engaging in the meaning making process as they try to figure out um, why our you know world is essentially on fire right now. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Thank you for sharing so much about what motivates you. Um, now I'd love to to hear more about what you feel are some of the most significant factors that assist you in getting others committed to causes that you care about. Um, so there was a, a study, um, that was done, gosh, it was like, I think it was like in 2019, so it wasn't very long ago, that talked about, uh, empathy and about, uh, how our brains are wired differently to be empathic to, uh, folks that are, are different from us compared to folks that we think are similar to us. And so there's a part of your brain that doesn't activate as fast if you see the person as, as different um, and those differences are based on some sort of stereo, negative stereotype that you have about that person. And so if we're thinking about ways to challenge, uh, you know, how we view marginalized individuals or things like that, the first thing that we have to challenge is seeing difference as bad. So if we see difference as just difference, then that encourages us to uh, engage in a level of empathy that we otherwise might not. Um, and empathy is where it starts. You have to be able to see someone suffering in order to do something about the suffering. Another thing to think about is this idea of values. Uh, sometimes when we're working with marginalized individuals, we think that their values in some ways are different from us. Uh, but in a lot of ways, I mean, we're all fighting for the same thing. We're all fighting for uh, a space at the table. And some of us are fighting already at the table and many of us are fighting uh, at the little kid's seat, uh, trying to get our spot uh, at the big kid's table. And uh, recognizing, you know, part in that values that, um, you know, we all have space, there's room for all of us, you know, there's no need to fight over uh, um, a, a, a limitless resource, which is validation, affirmation, and being willing to bear witness to someone else's suffering. That doesn't cost us anything. Uh, to do any of those uh, those concepts. Yeah, I think we could all do with more empathy right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so thinking about the role of psychology in general and psychologists um, in advancing social change, particularly in anti-racist efforts right now, what do you think are some of the best action steps people can take? So knowing that uh, psychology is... 90, well, probably was it 85 or 90 percent white? There's a strong likelihood um, that most of the people that will be coming in for issues of suffering related to racism will come in contact with the white individual. And so, if we think about some of the challenges in psychology, uh, many of the psychotherapy approaches have been designed by white people. Most of those approaches are then taught by white people. Most of those uh, practicums are supervised by white people, by mostly white students 
who are then licensed by boards that are composed mostly of white individuals. And so we have to recognize that there is a, um, a, a strong potential uh, to perpetuate uh, racist ways of thinking about folks uh, simply through a lack of exposure because from the start of your training to the time that you get licensed, you're inundated with a very uh, white way of thinking about the world. And so to truly engage in anti-racist practices, you have to be aware that that phenomenon is existing and find ways to break that cycle through uh, um, advocating for uh, inclusion of uh, persons of color that have created um, you know, black psychology or Latino psychology or psychology related to indigenous people, uh, et cetera. You have to advocate uh, for clients that are persons of color. You have to advocate for teachers uh, to teach you that are persons of color, supervisors that are persons of color, going to spaces for internship where uh, you are exposed to communities of color as well. Um, and then take what you learned and go back to your own folks and share that information with them. I think where people typically stop is by saying, now I better understand the experience of persons of color. And I'm gonna understand, I, I'm gonna share my understanding of their experience with other persons of color. That's really unhelpful. Like I get it, I know what it's like to be a person of color. I don't need to hear you talk about it. Who needs to hear it are the people that didn't have those experiences when it comes to exposure, when it comes to immersion. And for many white individuals, that's their own family, that's their spouses, that's their friends, uh, that's other folks in their communities. And so taking that information and sharing what you've learned in terms of the narrative uh, related to persons of color uh, back to those particular communities. Um, that's probably the best thing I would offer up in terms of how to be uh, a good anti-racist uh, advocate and ally is talking to your own folks uh, about what you are learning um, about uh, different persons of color. Thank you. That's that's very good advice. And I think your your description of psychology as a whole and the homogeneity across the different influencing organizations in the field, I think, applies to to so many things. But hopefully, we can make some changes in psychology as a field. No, oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, our the last psychology president, the last two psychology presidents, I think, uh, were, were black women. Um, you know, I, I think there are, are strides being made. I just, it's just going to take time. Psychology for at least a hundred years um, was a very white field. Um, you know, there was a there was one point in time where there was um, psychopathology associated uh, with being a person of color. Like if I think about, you know, draftomania or protest psychosis uh, or things like that, at one point it was um, it was considered bad to be um, a person of color. And then if you look at, um, um, you know, precursors to psychology like phenomenology, uh, where they were, you know, saying that, you know, the bumps in your head uh, could give an indication of your intelligence and, and those type of things. I mean, you know, psychology unfortunately has at its underpinnings um, some, some very racist ways of being in the world. Uh, think about the bell curve and, and and all of that. You know, those are things for us to consider. Yeah, I think it's it's really good advice to keep our history in mind too as we move forward to acknowledge what the field's foundation 
has been. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so now I'd like to move into more leadership-focused questions. Okay. Um, so first, I'm wondering if you can de- describe how you're thinking about leadership as COVID-19 continues to impact us all. Sure. So I'm thinking about um, uh, the importance of support uh, and uh, the importance of uh, intentional planning. Um, so uh, the first thing we have to recognize is that uh, a leader is someone that doesn't just jump into planning, you know, policy making, you know, doing things like that. They first check in uh, with the folks that um, are working with them to make sure that they're okay. And for many of our clinicians and for many of the folks that I work with, right, we're, we're not okay. We've been sitting at home uh, for almost three months and we've been isolated from the people that we care about. We've been isolated from our routines. Um, and that can be really challenging to cope with. And it would be really harmful for me to uh, immediately go into uh, to planning and to you know, thinking about you know, next steps without first checking in with folks and offering them the support that they need. And I think a, a good leader, especially during this time, stops and asks the question, are you okay? Uh, they let the folks around them know that it's okay not to be okay. And then they offer the support, whatever support that they need, uh, whether it be silence, whether it be a kind word, whatever it is that they're looking for, a good leader finds a way to offer that up uh, to make sure that the folks around them are okay. And then the next part is intentional planning. Uh, so we are uh, in uncharted waters here. Uh, I mean, I can't recall there a pandemic uh, during my lifetime, what what H twenty one? I guess that was sort of a pandemic, but uh, I don't remember the country shutting down in the same way that it has now. Um, and so each step that we take in terms of um, uh, you know determining how we're going to see clients, how we're going to administer assessments, how we're going to train students, how we're going to teach students, et cetera, uh, we're stepping in a path. Uh, that there's no path for us. And so when that happens, we have to engage in intentional planning uh, to make sure that we're being very thoughtful in the course that we're plotting, uh, because presumably there will be other folks behind us who might follow the same course. And so we wanna make sure each step that we take is on pretty solid footing. Um, and so a good leader you know, engages in intentional planning, which means that you know, we're doing thoughtful research, we're doing a thoughtful uh, consumption of the research around us. We're asking a lot of really thoughtful questions. And then we're also engaging in significant collaboration and consultation. This is not a good time for anyone trying to try to create policies and procedures on their own. We should uh, be connecting with folks, you know, putting egos aside, saying, well, it seems like you got a handle on this. Can you show me what you did here so I can also do this in my center as well? And so uh, being willing to offer significant support to those around you and then being willing to engage in meaningful and thoughtful planning uh, that is intentional, collaborative, and is seeking to uh, lead to sustainable uh, change in the future. Those are very wise insights into what we need from leaders right now. And thinking about the support piece, I know as a student, I think I felt the most safe and supported when I've had my mentor mostly check in with me and, and ask, how are you doing? Are you okay? I'm here for you. And I think those things are kind of understated oftentimes. 
Oh yeah, for sure. And, you know, not just settling for the, the fine, right. You know, I'm a, a stereotypical man cause well, it's just how things are. And there's just something about, um, uh, saying fine that is automatic, right? You know, it's just a, a stock answer that we have for everything. Uh, I noticed that your, you know, your finger is off. You all right? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. But your finger is detached from your hand. There's no way you could be fine. And it's like, oh yeah, you're right. Maybe I'm not fine. You know, maybe I'm, I'm not okay. Um, and so, you know, like just thinking about my own personal experience and how easy it is for me just to answer I'm fine or I'm all right or I'm okay to everything. Uh, thinking through that we can't, especially in this time, settle for that initial answer. We have to dig a little deeper and ask maybe a question like, well, what does fine mean to you? What does it mean to you to be all right? Uh, can you describe to me what has been okay about your day? Um, so people give you a little more descriptive words uh, to help you to understand what that word means to them. What does fine mean to you? Yeah, that's, I think, really, really wise as well. And thinking about that, I think before you can even ask that question and expect an honest answer, you need to build a really trusting relationship with a person so they feel like they can confide in you and share if they're not fine as well. Sure, very good point. So could you describe an example of a great leadership experience you've had in your career? It could be with you leading or it could be some with someone else leading. Well, of course, I want to talk about myself because that's why we're here. Uh, but I think I want to uh, talk about someone else instead. So probably one of the uh, best leaders that I've uh, observed uh, in my time uh, was someone uh, that I saw running a nonprofit organization. And uh, the real cool thing about this person is they had uh, a vision and they had a way of communicating that vision that really just stirred people up and, uh, you know, got them really motivated to want to, to do something. But then not only did this person communicate that vision, they were able to turn it into tangible action. Because, you know, usually we have leaders that fall into two camps. Either they are people that can stir folks up and really get them motivated, or we have folks that are, are real kind of nuts and bolts and, you know, can help assign people tasks to do. But this person was able to do both of those in the same person. And I'd never seen that before. It was like, wow, look at this person. They are, um, you know, really thoughtful in how they communicate a vision. I've noticed that they say the same thing to different people, but the way that they say it uh, is different based on the audience because they recognize that you, the way you talk to this group is different from how you talk to this group. But then I noticed that people leave not only feeling like they want to do something, but also feeling like they know what it is that they're supposed to do. Uh, I feel like they have the tools to do so. And I really found it to be a really meaningful leadership uh, experience for me because that's the type of leader that I hope to be uh, one day is someone that can that can convey a, a vision but they can communicate that vision uh, in a way to pe where people understand the tangible steps that they need to do in order to fulfill the core tenets of the vision that's been discussed. It sounds like that leader also had a very high level of emotional intelligence too. Well for sure and that is uh, part and parcel, um, you know, you get people first with the emotional pull. That's why if you look at many of our commercials, you know, the commercials make you happy. So you want to get more of whatever it is that made you happy. They made you angry. And so you want to get uh, less of whatever it was or they make you anxious. And so you want to get whatever it is that is going to make you less anxious. You know, it's, it's emotion first and the reason follows after that. 
I think a good leader is, is aware uh, that you have to tap into people's emotions appropriately uh, and then channel that emotion uh, into some sort of tangible action. That's a great insight. So we've made it to our last question. So now I'd like to hear a little bit more from you about the advice you would give to others about being a good leader, especially right now. Um, so um, a good leader is someone that knows how to affirm and be compassionate. A good leader is someone that knows how to communicate a, a vision well. Uh, a good leader is someone that holds themselves accountable as well as holding the folks that they're working with accountable. A good leader is someone that is collaborative. And a good leader is someone who really just is, is intentional and, and thoughtful and doesn't make any sort of decision uh, alone. Uh, if you hear a leader say anything about what well, that I decided, as opposed to we decided, I would be really concerned uh, because I means that you did not consult. It means that you just made up something in your head that you didn't get the buy-in from uh, the people around you. Uh, but a we decision is one where you've consulted with, you know, wise people in your circle. You've consulted with people that you know will disagree with you to offer you a challenge to your way of thinking about things. And that you reach out to the folks who are actually going to have to implement your vision and plan to make sure that it seems feasible for them to do that. Um, so I will be looking for a lot of we leadership, not a lot of our leadership. I really like that distinction and language that comes up in um, a book reading as part of the Kentucky Psychology Association Leadership Program. So we're reading, it's called The Leadership Challenge. I'm not sure if you've heard of it, but there's a, a chunk of the book that's focused on the type of language leaders use. And we, as you mentioned, brings in so much more buy-in and indicates that it's kind of a group decision rather than the decision of just the individual. Yeah, people are more likely to engage in an effort if they feel like they've had some involvement in the decision to move in that direction. Well, thank you for, for those insights. And I feel like your description of an effective leader and your advice on that really parallels the description of the leader you mentioned admiring in your previous work. So thank you for that. You're welcome. And I think that's all the time we have left for today. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Dr. Niffley. We really appreciate your time and you taking the time to be here. Oh, certainly my pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership Narratives with the Kentucky Psychological Association. Our sound engineer is Julian Mackerel. A big thank you to the KPA Leadership Academy and Dr. Eric Ress for making this podcast possible.